And as you guys make your way to Hebrews chapter 2, let me just remind you that this letter is written to a group of people that are struggling with a tradition. They've, they've got this tendency to want to go back to traditions uh, from the past. And as I was thinking about this week and the time of year that we're in, I was thinking about Christmas in the season. It seems like uh, more and more often the season is getting pushed uh, further and further up. It used to be you wouldn't dare put up your Christmas tree until uh, after Thanksgiving. And yet here we've got uh, trees going to be going up right after Halloween. And so if you're anything like me, if you're wired like me, uh, my immediate reaction is uh, Scrooge, right? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get a tree out this year. In fact, I was such a Scrooge this year. I told my wife, I saw a sign about people that put Christmas lights up for you. I'm just going to pay somebody to put the lights up. Not even worth getting the stuff out and the cords. And next thing you know, I'm tangled up in in the whole thing. And the lights don't work. And then they're flickering. You know, I'm going to pay somebody to do it. And she said, man, that sounds great. By the way, did you know that uh, your boys for school, um, they wrote a whole paper about one of their favorite things about the tradition of the season is putting lights up with their dad. I'm like, I can't wait to get those boxes out. This is going to be awesome. Praise the Lord for that. So I will be putting lights up on my house. But what has happened for this group of people in Hebrews is they've been tempted to go back to the ways of tradition, back to what was comfortable, that old Christmas sweater. And, and yet what we know is that Jesus had delivered them from the bondage that was all of those old traditions. That what the law did, it was perfect at what it did. It actually pointed to the fact that we can't do it. We can't actually fulfill the law of Moses. And so the law was like a schoolmaster. It it taught us that what we needed was a savior. That at best, any covering, any atonement that would have been provided through the law was at best temporary. Year after year, they would have had to go through these same traditions to be able to atone for their sin. And yet what we have found through this relationship with Christ is he dealt with it finally, completely, and for all of eternity. The perfect atonement. And yet, as the pressure was applied and the season began to happen, they were thinking, you know, it would just be easier to go back. It would be easier than fighting through all of this stuff that we're dealing with to just go back to the old way. Surely it doesn't need to be this difficult. And and so for the writer here, he wants to encourage them with the theme of the book of Hebrews that you all have down by now that Jesus is better. Whatever it is, Jesus is better than that thing. He is superior. He is the fulfillment of all things and he is superior to all things. And so as we covered chapter one, what we saw is Jesus is better than the angels. He is far more superior than them. And in the Old Testament, they had this idea throughout Judaism that the law was actually given to Moses by the angels. They got that from Deuteronomy 33. And so they they gathered this idea that Moses was given the law by the angels. And so in chapter 1, as the writer is saying, Jesus is better than the angels, what he's saying is he is better than even the messengers of the law. He is superior, therefore, to the law itself. Which brings us to chapter 2, verse 1, where the first word we read is, therefore. What you Bible students know is anytime we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It points us back to the previous section where the writer is showing evidence through the Old Testament of the superiority of the Messiah to any angelic or any created being. He continues in verse 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. 
For if the word spoken through angels provided, proved steadfast, excuse me, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. What he is sharing here as we begin is all the tradition they had, this law that was given by Moses, it also came with a series of consequences. If you obey the law, you'll be blessed. If you disobey the law, you'll be cursed. And Moses, wanting to show this, wanting to give them this picture, the Lord had him take the tribes of Israel and split them up into two. He put half of the nation at Mount Ebal, half of the nation at Mount Gerizim, and they actually recited back in Deuteronomy 27 the blessings and the cursings that were both in the law of Moses. They were sort of like, if you've if you ever been to Assembly Hall, right? The I-L-L-I-N-I. That's way more holy than less filling tastes great. So they were chanting these things, though, from one side of the mountain to the other. They were yelling these things back and forth. You could imagine millions of people yelling out the blessings and the cursings. And what was the reason behind that? It was so that they would remember. It's so that they would have this fresh in their mind. He continues in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So if the law, if it was not followed, it was going to provide a whole list, a whole litany of curses. What about one who is greater than the law if we ignored him? How should we ignore so great a salvation? How should we ignore one who is even greater than the law? In fact, he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law is what Jesus said. So the fulfillment of the law, if we ignore him, how should we ignore so great a salvation? Somebody's trying to steal your car, you see. And we're going to go through a whole series about what not to worry about, including whoever's car siren is going off right now. That's not distracting, so it's okay. It's probably mine, you know, that's the funniest part. It's probably my car. I'm not going to give anybody a hard time about it at all. At the end of here, verse 3, what we see is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? <laughs> this is awesome. This is what the rapture is going to look like, by the way. All you that don't believe, uh, it's all going to, yeah, it's just going to be people gone. This is great. Mom's little baby loves shortening, shortening. Mom's little baby loves shortening bread. Oh, hey. All right. We got it. Let's go back. So what we see is the writer trying to make clear that if the law was to provide all this series of consequences, how much more would it be if we ignored King Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, who at the end of verse 3 we see, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So what we see is this witness that was given first by Jesus himself. He came to make it clear that he was the Messiah. I love it when people say, you know, Jesus never said that he was God uh, anywhere in the New Testament. I would challenge you um, that Jesus was saying continuously that he was God. I don't know if you've actually read the Gospels, but he started off saying he was God. He continued at every turn saying, I am God in the flesh. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. And so he, bear, he bore witness of himself. Not only that, but there were others. There were those like Peter and James and John, Andrew, that all gave firsthand accounts of the Messiah, their interactions, the words that he spoke. And these men so believed what he had spoken to them that they were willing to give their own lives 
to be martyrs. In fact, of this list of fishermen uh, turned disciples, three of the four uh, would be martyred. And the only one that would not would be John the Apostle, who uh, don't think he got off completely scot-free. Uh, Nero actually had him placed in uh, boiling oil alive. So not a great situation for John, which he lived through that whole scene. And that's why uh, many believe, and I do as well, that John was the first ever friar. All right, just making sure you're still paying attention after the car thing. Now, we see that the firsthand account was provided by these men. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So we see not only did these men bear witness to Jesus, but so too did the Holy Spirit through signs and wonders that he was the Messiah. Now, one thing I want to point out is that signs and wonders uh, never actually save anyone. There's a reason that evangelism starts and the signs and wonders always follow. It's not the opposite way. In fact, by Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 16, this is after the resurrection, he says to them, he who believes, excuse me, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, evangelize. Verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And so all these amazing miracles will take place. But notice how he starts there in verse 15. It starts with evangelism. That it's always after the evangelism is happening. The point isn't the, the sign and wonder. The point is resurrection. And so for those of you that would say, you know, I've never seen a miracle like this take place, um, I would encourage you to take a look around because there's something far more miraculous than any sign and wonder, and that is the sign of resurrection. Someone that was reborn, transformed from the inside out. There's nothing more amazing than that. A beautiful testimony. Now also notice with me as these gifts are concerned here in verse 4 that various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit are given according to His own will. That there are many places that will teach if you just name it and claim it. If you believe, you can receive. And yet, there's uh, nothing about that in Scripture. That in fact, what we see is uh, the Holy Spirit gives these gifts according to His will. He decides who receives what gift, to what measure they receive the gift, the way the gifts will be distributed. And, and when he decides, his vision is always for the Son to be glorified. And the Son always points back to the Father, the perfect uh, Trinity existing together. And so the gifts are given so that many might be saved. That's the idea. Now verse 5, as we continue, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. And so the writer is now saying, look, the world hasn't been put into subjection to angels. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, what Paul says is that the angels will actually be subject uh, to be judged by us. That we have actually been given the ability to judge over uh, the angels. He continues in verse 6, and he says, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? 
Now, this one that is referred to is none other than uh, David himself. And he writes Psalm chapter 8. I'll go back there so you can understand his his vantage point as he's writing Psalm chapter 8. In verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. That's how he starts in verse 3. He's looking up at the sky. He's looking at all this beauty and this creation. He's like, God, I'm just thinking about all that you've done, all that you've created. Who am I that you're mindful of me? Have you ever felt that way? He continues in verse 7 of Hebrews, which is a direct reference to Psalm 8. He says, you have made him, speaking of man, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So as David asks this question, who are you that you're mindful of me? Who am I, excuse me, that God, you're mindful of me and my spot. Uh, Here's who we are. God is not only mindful for us, he has actually given us a tremendous amount of responsibility. That what David is referring to here is is ultimately what God's desire was for Adam and Eve was for all of the earth to be subjected to them. Was for them to have authority over all of the earth. They were crowned with glory and honor in the beginning of Genesis. He's thinking back to that and he's thinking about this glory and this authority and this dominion that they were to have. And yet what we know is... Um, they forfeited it. They gave it up. They chose to obey another master there in the garden. Now, before we get all up, bent out of shape about Adam and Eve, you know, them uh, giving in to sin, Satan tricking them with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the lust of the flesh, uh, I want to just remind you that um, they were the very best humanity could do. It didn't get better than Adam and Eve. And so anytime I get upset and go, well, I wouldn't have eaten of the fruit. As I was writing this this week, I looked to my left and I saw those Hostess chocolate donuts. Have you ever tried those things? I mean, they are fantastic. There's a reason they put six, the the number of Satan himself, in the package. Because they're evil, right? And yet I can't resist. I'm over there just, wow, man, popping them away. And I'm writing this, am I better than Adam and Eve? I'm like, heck no, I'm not. I can't resist a chocolate donut let alone the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is the very best that we could do. And so in giving up this authority, what they did is they handed the keys over to Satan. So when you look at the world and what's taking place and you ask, why are things such a mess? Why is there murder and death and school shootings and rape and all the things that we see happening? Well, it's because of who we allowed to be in charge. All this suffering is ultimately because we handed over the authority uh, to the prince of the power of the air, is what Paul would call him. And yet, I've been given authority in another arena in my life, over my own home as a leader of my household. And I have to ask myself, as I get all uh, offended by what the world has allowed, I have to ask, what have I allowed What things have I allowed to come in and enter into the place that God has given me authority over that I need to do a better job of having dominion in this area? That silly box that's on my wall or the little Alexa that seems to listen to every one of my conversations because it pops up on my Facebook feed. She must be listening. But what things have I allowed into my life and and allowed that I have the ability to actually uh, stomp out? 
And here's the thing. About the time we think all is lost, in verse 8, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. About the time all hope seems lost, we see Jesus. We should have had all things under subjection to us and had dominion, yet we did not. We forfeited it, and yet we see Jesus. What the first Adam stepped up to the plate and completely and utterly whiffed. I mean, he struck out in gigantic fashion. He went down looking on a third strike. Yet here is the last Adam, King Jesus. He steps up to the plate, and he fulfills all that we should have been. And by that, I mean, look at his life. Look at what he was able to do. He looked into the wind and he said, be muzzled. And the winds stopped. He looked to the waves and he said, be still. And they were like glass. Even the very beasts themselves had to listen to King Jesus. He was all that we should have been. And yet here in verse 9, we see, who was made a little lower than the angels. So here's someone with all this power, infinite power, and yet he was made a little lower than the angels. Why on earth would he do that? Why would he subject himself to that? In verse 9, he continues and says, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He did this so that you and I would not have to taste death. And this death that he's speaking of is spiritual death, separation from God for all of eternity. That's ultimately what we deserved. Not only that, he went so far as to actually retake, to reclaim the title deed to the earth that we gave up. So if you think about this, in ancient times, as they would assign a property to someone, they would write the property description, similarly to what we do with the surveyor, a legal description. Here's where the pins are. Here's what you're actually, uh, what you have purchased or what you've been given, maybe what you've inherited as it is in this case. And so the title deed to the earth was actually handed to Adam and Eve, and yet they uh, forfeited it. In that day, in ancient times, what would happen is if you had a debt that you couldn't pay, you could forfeit your uh, property, the thing that was due to you. And on the outside of that scroll of that title deed, they would write all the requirements that you had to fulfill in order to reclaim, in order to redeem what was yours by inheritance. Understand that this is what took place in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3. That the title deed to the earth was forfeited over to Satan. And the only way it could be reclaimed is if all the requirements on the outside of the deed were completely and totally fulfilled. Revelation chapter 5. This is what John was witnessing here in Revelation as he writes, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look at it. And so, verse 4, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John was heartbroken as he saw this because the title deed was lost forever. 
There was no hope. There was no one worthy to open the scroll until verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He was the only one worthy to reclaim the kinsman redeemer, the last Adam. And for a fun little Bible journey, if you want to look up kinsman redeemers throughout the Bible, you'll find a a beautiful parallel right back to Christ Jesus. Little clues start in the book of Ruth. But this beautiful promise to be able to redeem, to retake what was rightfully given up by us, Jesus reclaimed so that the title deed could be returned. Authority could be given again. And yet in the middle of all this, what we see is he tasted death for everyone so that we wouldn't have to. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what he cries out is, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What cup is he referring to? The cup of wrath. The wrath that was due, that was owed by me. The list of requirements that was on the back of the scroll that I couldn't fulfill. That wrath that was poured out on my behalf, but he took it so I wouldn't have to. He continues in verse 10, saying, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. One of my favorite titles for Jesus in all of Scripture, the captain of our salvation. And how was he uh, worthy to be the captain of our salvation? Because he was perfect. And yet, as he was perfect, he took all the suffering on our behalf. He took it all for you and I so that we could be made perfect. Beautiful promise. He was like that, that perfect boss. You guys have all had that, that guy or gal you worked for that would give you the whole list of all the things to do, and yet uh, what they would do is nothing. They wouldn't do any of those things they'd asked you to do. They'd put all this, they'd put all these burdens on you and say, go get them, tiger. And you know that if you were in battle working for that person, as soon as they jump out of the foxhole, guess what's going to happen? I'm putting a bullet in that dude's back. I mean, I'm taking him out. Because he's not going to stand up for me. He doesn't know what I've been through, what I've gone through. He wouldn't even do any of these things. That's not Jesus. He's the captain of our salvation, who through his sufferings made us perfect. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am, here am I, the children whom God has given me. And so what we see is, in light of all this, in light of Jesus being willing to be the captain of our salvation to suffer for us, Who am I now to deny him? Jesus would make it very clear in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. He says in Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, 
Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, the captain has done so much. He's given up so much for you and I to be made perfect. And yet, if we deny him, what we see is he will uh, deny us before the Father. And yet, if we confess him, what he is saying here is, he will say, Dad, this is one of mine. I've got this one covered. He is in me. He is perfect because of the robe of righteousness I have given him. And as a result, back to Hebrews 11, he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. I will declare your name before all the brethren. I will actually come alongside you and sing with you while we worship together. That's a beautiful picture. So we think about worshiping Jesus this morning. Do you realize he is right there alongside you, worshiping with you? The question is, are we willing to acknowledge him? For years and years, I sat in worship services up mumbling. I did the old Jesus mumble. You ever done that? Not actually willing to sing. Not really willing to confess him. Not really willing to proclaim him. I was doing that with Jesus, willing to come alongside me and sing with me. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in that spot at all, realize he is willing to come right alongside you, not to be ashamed of how you sing or the way that you worship. And if it comes to you putting your hands up and just praising him, realize King Jesus is there raising his hands right alongside you. He is willing to worship with us. Beautiful picture. We continue in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, and that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The promise here of Jesus is um, to deliver me from the thing that I fear the absolute most, and that is death. It may not be physical death for every one of us, but for each of us there is something that we fear. And what the enemy is constantly whispering is, uh, you're going to lose that. What happens if this takes place? What happens if you lose that person, that relationship, that job? What happens if all these things aren't actually fulfilled? And we begin to, it's like the clue game. I was playing this with the kids uh, just a couple weeks ago, and it's, it, it, it brought this picture to mind. It's the, was it, you know, Colonel Mustard with the pipe in the library? I don't know. We have all these questions. It takes sometimes an hour to play these silly games. But the reality is we play this game over and over again in our life. What if? When will it happen? What if this takes place? What if this happens? What if that happens? What Jesus has done is he's given us the key to not have to fear those things any longer. And here it is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. By his own words, he states this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus 
And his great suggestion for how we are to live freely and no longer fear death is to die. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> this is the great suggestion? He wants us to die? Yes. Absolutely. Dying to ourselves. As a little uh, aside, I would encourage you, well, maybe not encourage, just, that'd be the wrong word, because it might be breaking and entering. But go into a funeral home Go down to where um, they have the bodies there prepared for the funeral in the caskets and, and just do this. Uh, whisper in the ear of the person laying there, you know they're going to leave you. You know you're not going to get that promotion, right? You know the economy's going to hell in a handbasket. There's a recession coming. You know it's going to be a red country, a blue country, a purple country. Whisper those things into the ear of that person and watch their reaction. <laughs> um, they're not going to react. You're not going to see any worry on their face because they're already dead. No reaction whatsoever. They're not concerned. They're not upset. This is actually the freedom that we can have in Christ. To die to ourselves, to live in Christ, we can be that kind of free. Knowing that everything that comes my way, it comes from the will of the Father himself. And if he's willed it, he's got a plan for me. It must be what is best in my life. What Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 is this. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. No longer is it me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. So anything the world wants to do to me, to throw at me, they're really throwing it at Jesus. And what I see is he's already had a victory. And in my life personally, he's going to provide direction inside his will. He's going to see me through whatever this situation is that I am currently in as I live in Christ. No longer bound up by the fear of death. 4 verse 16, indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Those who are the seed of Abraham, the father of the faith, the sons and the daughters of the faith, this is who he gives comfort to. This is who he provides aid for. Verse 17, therefore, again, what is it therefore? In light of all this, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He did all this by becoming like us. And as he became like us, he became our high priest. Now, for a high priest in the Old Testament, they had two main functions. One, they represented man to God. And secondly, they represented God to man. Meaning that they would get a word from the Lord, and then they would share it with the people. They would be the mouthpiece, the spokesman of God. They would represent God to man. But they would also represent man to God. For the high priest, what they would do is once a year on Yom Kippur, they would take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and they would drip it on 
uh, the mercy seat. Now, there's a little issue with this. Uh, you see, as they gave atonement for the sins of the people, uh, for the high priest, they were also a man as well. And so they had a sin nature. And what they knew in that day is they would actually tie a rope around the foot of the high priest and uh, bells. So as, they were in, as he was in there ministering before uh, God in the Holy of Holies, if sin was found in him, if he was found to be unworthy, and God, boom, strikes him dead, they'd be able to drag that dude out because who wants to go in there after God struck him dead? So they tied the rope around his feet to be able to pull him back out. But this was always an imperfect a sacrifice given by an imperfect man, an atonement that wouldn't last until the time of King Jesus, who Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he continues this idea of Jesus as our propitiation. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's by us. Two, in verse 26, demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. So what we see is as Jesus Christ comes into the scene, he can become our perfect high priest to be both the just and the justifier. As the high priest would drip the blood of sacrifice on the mercy seat there in the Old Testament, um, they had a, a word for the uh, mercy seat that translates into our English as the propitiation, the payment that turns away wrath. You see, Jesus was both the atonement for and the receiver of the blood. He was the just and the justifier. He was the only one able to make atonement and also to judge righteously as well. He is the mercy seat itself. And what we see about him being described here in Hebrews chapter 11 as the propitiation is that he was two words, uh, both merciful and faithful as a high priest. Mercy, you might recall, is me uh, not getting what I do deserve. What I deserve, Romans 3.23 made it clear, is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What I deserve is hell and death. The same is true for every one of us. That's what we actually deserve. And yet what Jesus has given us is mercy. He's a merciful high priest, pouring himself out for us. And secondly, he is also faithful. When I looked up the definition uh, according to Webster this week, uh, the word faithful means to be uh, loyal or steadfast. Think about those words to describe Jesus. He is faithful. He is loyal. And he is steadfast. He is not one who gives up easily. He is not one who quits. And I think of words that describe me, it is anything but loyal and steadfast. Constantly when things get hard, my first reaction is to just quit. Throw my hands up. I, that's enough. I can't keep going like this. Not King Jesus. He is not a quitter. He is faithful. Even when I lack faith in almost every area in my life, he is faithful and true. He is steadfast, willing to stick with us. 
There were some, though, as I share that, will immediately in your mind go, yeah, but does that apply to me? Does he know everything I've done? Does he know all the things I've thought, the things that have happened in my life? Has he, has he been tempted like I've been tempted? Or secondly, has he understood the suffering that I've had? The things that I've had to go through in my life in order to get here, surely this can't be for me. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The reason he is worthy to be our high priest, faithful and merciful, is because he can also relate. In all ways, he is relatable to us. When we are convinced that surely he doesn't understand, the reality is he can sympathize and he is also qualified to represent us. He can sympathize with us and he is qualified to represent us, which makes him worthy of being our high priest. He can look into our situation and say, yeah, I know a thing or two about suffering. I know what loss feels like. I stepped down from my throne on high to suffer. Yeah, I've been tempted, absolutely tempted in the desert, even tempted up to the very end. Think about him there in the garden. As Peter wants to defend Jesus, he pulls out a sword, lops off uh, Malchus, the high priest's servant's ear, ready to defend Jesus. And what's Jesus say? He says, look, don't you know that by one word I could call 10,000 legions of angels to defend me? That's some kind of temptation. Because I got to tell you, if I'm in that spot, I'm saying, word, <laughs> I'm, call I'm calling down a word, time out, I've had enough. Bring on the angels. Let's clean up the bodies later. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And therefore, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, why on earth would he do that? Why would he go through all that for us? I'll fast forward, give you a little highlight for later on in the book. Chapter 12, verse 12. Jesus, the author and the finisher of of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason that he would suffer, the reason he would put it all on the line, is for the joy that was set before him. That's you and I. We're the prize. We're the ones that he's come for. We're the great treasure that was buried. The joy that was set before him, despising the cross and the shame that went along with it, but he was so willing to do it for you and I. Who are we to deny such a great salvation? And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for being willing to be the captain of our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for coming through for us when we could not by any means redeem ourselves the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Lord, it doomed us. Thank you for being willing to take it all for us. Thank you for being willing to deliver us. Thank you for being willing to also suffer and be tempted in the ways that we're tempted so you could relate to us, so you could sympathize with us. 
not wanting to just put your thumb on us and hold us down. Not with a see, I told you they couldn't do it. But instead as a faithful and a merciful high priest willing to make payment on my behalf. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. In Jesus' name.